Good morning, Ocean View. It is welcome to all our viewers and all the different places they're at. We are in part two of a message series that's called God with Us. Now we're looking at the different ways that we can encounter the presence of God in different seasons of our lives. Uh, and we're going to let a text from the New Testament be an anchor for us. It's one of the most important verses that really helps solidify our faith and strengthen our understanding of the presence of God. Found in Matthew 1, verse 23. It says, Look, the virgin will conceive a child, she'll give birth to a son, they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. God with us. It's so easy to believe that God is with us when things are good, isn't it? But it's sometimes more difficult to sense His presence when we are struggling. We can encounter the presence of God in different seasons of our lives. And we looked last week about how we experience the presence of God in the valley. And uh, we remember we enjoy God on the mountaintops, but we experience Him intimately in the valley. Today we're going to talk about another metaphor from Scripture. It is the wilderness how do we experience God's presence in the wilderness? One of the images often found in the wilderness is about wandering through the wilderness. So we are wondering when in the world this wandering is going to be over. We're wondering when we're going to get out of the wilderness. Some of you right now, you might be in some type of wilderness. And we can see the wilderness and the valley. Now, we, last week we talked about the valley, but the wilderness is similar to the valley, but it's a lot longer. Seems to be drier, seems to go on and on and on, and we're just wondering, when is this going to stop? Maybe some of you are stuck in a job, and you're wondering, should I stay in this job, or should I go back to school? But then you kind of go, but if I go back to school, I might end up with student loan debt, and then, well, maybe I might have a better job. So I'm kind of stuck in this place. Should I stay? Should I do something different? Maybe you're renting a house and you wonder, should I buy a house? I'm not getting any equity in it, but if I do that, I could get transferred, then I have to sell a house, and I just don't know. So you kind of feel stuck in that place. In the wilderness, we often feel alone, we feel lost, we feel disoriented, or we feel stuck. We feel like nobody really understands what we're going through in the wilderness. There are a lot of wilderness stories in the Bible, like valley stories. They often follow mountaintop experiences. Jesus had a mountaintop experience, a mountaintop moment with God right after he was baptized by the John the Baptist in the Jordan River. Heaven opened, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove. His Father verbally and publicly expresses His love and approval for His Son. God says, this is my Son whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. It's a mountaintop experience. It's a Father saying, I'm proud of the Son. It's that mountaintop. But then the next verse goes, immediately Jesus was driven into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. From the mountaintop into the wilderness. Some of you, it might have been like that. Things were going great. And then you found out that someone wasn't being honest with you. Suddenly, you're in a wilderness. You thought your spouse was being faithful and your spouse wasn't. Now, you're in a wilderness. 
You're in a financial wilderness. You're trying and trying and trying to get out of debt, but you feel so desperate it's just not working. Whatever you do, nothing helps. You've tried to tell people how you feel, but they don't seem to understand. So you feel alone. You feel spiritually dry. You feel desperate in the wilderness. Well, we're going to take a story from the Old Testament to kind of help us highlight this New Testament verse, God with us. In the Old Testament, we look in 1 Kings chapter 19. Now, if you were watching uh, way back in uh, Campbell River, when I was in Campbell River, we talked about this Elijah person. Now, we're going to go on a little bit different route this morning, so you don't have to switch to another channel. You can actually continue to listen, and uh, we're going to talk about Elijah the prophet. Now, God used Elijah in massive ways. He was literally on the mountaintop where he experiences the power of God. And almost immediately after this, we see him go from the mountaintop to the wilderness, where he's desperate, where he's depressed, and where he feels all alone and scared for his life. From the top of the mountain to the bottom of Death Valley. Let me give you a little bit of the backstory. Elijah lived in the northern kingdom of Israel. So there's a southern Judah and northern Israel. And it was during the time of King Ahab. And you have to understand that King Ahab was the 19th consecutive evil king since the King Solomon in the northern kingdom. They just had bad king after bad king after bad king that led the people farther and farther away from God. He had done more evil in the eyes of God than any of those before him. And early in his career, he married a Sidonian princess. Her name was Jezebel. She came from Tyre in the north. She was both royalty and a high priestess of Baal and Ashtoreth. The kingdom of Israel at the time was the height of power and influence. But in an attempt to curb the evil path of the nation, Elijah confronts King Ahab. He prays for a drought as punishment for this king's sins. And sure enough, God stops the rain. Now, King Ahab is mad at Elijah. So he puts out a warrant for Elijah's arrest. But God is protecting Elijah. He sends him into hiding for three years. It was God's witness protection program. He miraculously feeds Elijah through ravens. Then God uses Elijah to raise a dead boy back to life. But there's been no rain for three years. God calls Elijah back to confront the king. And Elijah proposes a showdown. Get your 450 false prophets of Baal. Bring them up to Mount Carmel. We'll see who's the real God. They build a couple of altars. They put some bull sacrifices on them. And they prayed for fire to come down. May your God send fire. Well, the false prophets prayed and danced all day long. Nothing happened. And then in the evening, about three o'clock, at the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah gets up and he calmly prays to God and boom, God shoots fire from heaven, consumes the altar and everything on it. It burns everything up. And Elijah says, you are a big God. Then God destroys the false prophets. Elijah eventually prays and asks God to make it rain. He sees in the distance a small cloud the size of a man's hand, but he has faith to believe that God will bring in the provision of rain, and God does. Now this prophet experienced the protection of God. This prophet experienced the provision of God over and over and over again. For, 40 years, or for many years, he has seen the faithfulness of God. And then one day, a woman says, 
I'm going to kill you. Elijah freaks out and he panics. 1 Kings 19, verse 2. So Jezebel, that's the queen, sends a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. And she was referring to her dead false prophets. You know, towards the end of King Ahab's reign, he had handed much of the leadership of the kingdom over to his wife, to Jezebel. And she was a very strong leader. In the political arena, she was a superstar of power. So King Ahab comes home from this showdown up on Mount Carmel. He has an amazing story, and he says, you know, here's what Elijah did. I just don't know what to do. Elijah's God certainly seems to be powerful. But Queen Jezebel steps in, she takes over, and she says, Elijah, I'm going to kill you. You might be a man of God, but by this time tomorrow, you're going to be a dead man of God. Verse 3 says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. You know, it, this is a very simple verse, but it contains a huge amount of fear and emotion. King Ahab has been pursuing Elijah for years. He's been after him, and his army's been after him, his police have been after him. And now Queen Jezebel makes one threat, and Elijah just goes to pieces and runs for his life. It's confusing. We're going, what's going on here? You know, life can change in a moment from the mountaintop to confusing wilderness. Elijah ran south out of Israel right through Judah. There's a little map that'll come up and it shows, it says, when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. You'll see that round red circle, that is Mount Carmel. And then the yellow circle is Jezreel, where the king was. And Elijah ran from there, a hundred miles south, all the way through the next province, right down into Beersheba. This guy's on foot. He runs a hundred miles to get away from a crazy, angry woman. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And he comes to Beersheba. He leaves his servant. He goes another day's journey into the wilderness. And this was kind of deserty, wilderness area. He was just on a mountaintop. Where did he end up? In the wilderness. Where he's alone. Where he's scared. Where he's hurting. Where he's desperate. We continue to read and it says uh, out in the desert he came to a broom tree. He sat down under it and he prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. He prayed that he might die. That feelings of despair and desperation. And he said these words that so many of you have said or have felt at some point in your lives. He said, I've had enough. I just can't take it anymore. Have you ever said that? Maybe you thought those words. I've had it. This is enough. I don't want this anymore. He had put up a battle. He had fought with bravery. He had faith. He had courage. But finally, he was at the end of his rope. And he says, I've had enough. I've had enough. I'm certain there are some of you at some point in your life, you've said those words, I've had enough. Some of you might be at that point right now. I'm done. I'm spent. I've had enough. I can't take it anymore. You're raising kids. Then you're raising teenagers. And at some point, you've said it. I've had it up to here. I've had enough, Lord. 
Some of you are in a work situation where finally it's the straw that breaks the camel's back. I just can't take another day in this place. Financially, maybe, you're trying to get ahead, you're making progress, and then your car breaks, and your toilet overflows, and your two-year-old puts a tic-tac up his nose. Now you're going to the emergency room to get it removed. Lord, I cannot take it anymore. You feel overwhelmed. Sometimes it's even the little tiny small things will break it. You work hard. You serve faithfully. You make everybody the greatest meal ever. You put it on the table. It's made with love. They eat it in 30 seconds and boom, everybody disappears and leaves the dirty dishes. You turn into Jezebel. I am going to kill somebody. I can't take it anymore. Now, Elijah knew the presence of God in a very powerful way. He had experienced God's greatness more than any of us have really experienced. We've see, he saw God work in miraculous ways. Then one woman makes a threat, and he runs for his life. I've had enough. I can't take any more. I'm exhausted. I'm overwhelmed. I'm doing the best I can, but my mess, best isn't good enough. Dr. Henry Cloud is a fantastic Christian psychologist. He was talking to a group of leaders that were all experiencing the same thing. They were all talking about how they were tired, just tired. Now, Dr. Cloud said, for most of you, you're probably misdiagnosing your challenge. He said, most of you are not tired. Because if you were tired, you could take a nap and you would solve your problem. You're not in need of physical rest as much as you are in need of spiritual replenishment. You're not just tired, you're spiritually depleted. You're not just tired, you're not just overwhelmed. What you need is an encounter with a very real and very holy presence of God. What you need is an intimate moment where you experience the grace, the goodness, the loving kindness, the mercy of the presence of God. You're not just tired. Maybe you do need some rest. Maybe some physical rest would be good. But even more than physical rest, you need to encounter the grace of God. You need spiritual replenishment. That's what King David was talking about in the 23rd Psalm. You remember that? He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. That, doesn't that sound like rest? He leads me beside the still waters. Yeah. Why? He restores my soul. There it is. Spiritually depleted, he needed restoration of his soul. Not just tired, not just worn out. I need the restoration grace of God to my soul. Not just physically exhausted, but spiritually depleted. So what does God do with our man Elijah? That, that's where we're at this morning. You can see Elijah, spiritually depleted, depleted physically tired. God doesn't preach him a sermon. This is your fault. Repent. Just get over it. He doesn't give him 10 more verses to memorize. He doesn't say, where's your faith? What does God do? God tells him to eat and rest. Verse 5. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. You know, if you listen to God, he might say, get up, get a double cheeseburger with bacon on it. Get up and eat. Elijah ate and drank and he lay down again. Now, the more spiritual thing you can do is rest. 
in the presence of God. Don't go to another meeting. Don't read another Bible verse. The most spiritual thing you can do is rest. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is just take a breather and let God restore your soul. Verse 7, we read again, the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. I don't know about you, but sometimes I don't get it the first time. God comes back a second time and a third time because the presence of God continues to pursue you. And there are those of you today, God is coming back for you again. And if you don't get it today, he'll come back again and again and again until you get it. The Lord comes back another time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. Perhaps one of the most disobeyed commands of God in the world that we live in is that people don't rest. Honor God with the Sabbath. We just shake that off like it's nothing. Perhaps the most spiritual thing some of you can do is rest. But I've got to do this and I've got to do that. And it, well, you know, it doesn't matter if the clothes are dirty. It doesn't matter if the house isn't clean. It doesn't matter if the yard isn't mowed. It doesn't matter if a few things go undone. Perhaps the most important thing, the most spiritual thing you can do is rest. The angel of the Lord provides food and lets him take a nap. Verse 8 we read, Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Now that's the same mountain where God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. So basically what the angel told a depressed prophet was, eat, rest, and go to church. Go to the place where God is. God's prescription for depression. Eat, rest, and go to the place where you will experience God. Verse 9 tells us he was in Horeb. He is way out in the wilderness. He's struggling. He's saying and thinking over and over, I can't do this. I've had it. I'm done, Lord. And it says he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? Why are you running away from me? What are you doing here? Some of you, God may speak to you that way. What do you think you're doing? You know better than this. What are you doing right here, right now? You've got access to me. Why are you running away from people? Why are you running away from God? What are you doing here? And then Elijah starts getting the whiny voice. Do you know what the whiny voice is? That's not when you've drunk some wine. It is the whiny voice of a kid who's kind of whines and starts to complain. You know, I, I get whiny voice with God sometimes when I'm praying. When I feel like God's not answering my prayer, not doing what I want him to do, you get whiny voice. Listen to Elijah's reply to God. God says, Elijah, so why are you here? Elijah says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. And then he really gets whiny voiced. He says, and I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. That's what I'm doing, God. I've been working so hard. Why don't you hear my prayer? Why don't you do this for me? He's in a spiritual wilderness he's hurting 
His need is so great he cannot see beyond his own need. Nobody understands. Nobody's doing it like I'm doing. I'm all alone. I'm desperate. And so what does God do? God meets him in his deepest need. God ministers to him in his moment of vulnerability. God brings healing in the middle of the hurt. You know, your deepest need can become a gift when it drives you to depend on God. That's, that's one of those things for this message to write down. This is, this is sort of the, the, the meat of it. Your deepest need can become a gift when it drives you to depend on God. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, said it this way. We can ignore even pleasure. Pleasures come at us. You know, we can ignore pleasure. But pain, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Your deepest need, when you're in the wilderness, that deep need can be a gift when it drives you to depend on God. God says to Elijah in verse 11, Go and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. You're going to see God. He's thinking, that's what I need. I need God's presence. I'm scared for my life. I need God's presence. God is going to reveal Himself to me. God is going to pass by. Elijah was used to dealing with the God of fire, the God of miraculous provision, and now he meets with God and he's thinking, God's going to send this fire. He's going to be in the fire. He's going to show up in something big. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. Now we're talking a big wind, tearing the mountains apart, breaking rocks. That's some kind of wind. You would think God would be in the wind. And Elijah's thinking, God's going to be in the wind. God's coming in the rushing and the mighty wind. But the Scripture says, the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, it says there was an earthquake. Surely God is in the shaking of the ground. Surely He's in the earthquake. But Scripture again says, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. Well, after the earthquake came a fire. And I, I think by this time, Moses, or Elijah has been going, what is all this stuff going on? I mean, there's a fire coming in. Just like the burning bush was not consumed in the presence of Moses, maybe my God is coming in the fire. But Scripture says, the Lord was not in the fire. So the earth shook, and God wasn't in the shaking of the earth. The wind raged and God was not in the wind. And the fire burned and God wasn't in the fire. Earth, wind, and fire. See what God did there? God did that for those of you who lived through the 70s. Earth, wind, and fire. They started in 1969. Apparently they're still going. But God was not present in earth, wind, and fire. Verse 12. After the fire came a gentle whisper. God was not in the remarkable. God was in the ordinary whisper. Why is it then when life is so difficult, God is so quiet? Why is he gentle? 
Why is his voice so still and so small? If God wants us to hear him, why does he whisper? Why doesn't he shout? If he wants us to know him and to hear him, why is it gentle whisper? I'll tell you why. Because our children's story this morning tells us God whispers because he is close. He's right there. He's right beside you. He whispers because he is near. The devil shouts his lies, but God whispers his truth. God doesn't shout to get your attention from far away. He is very near, and he whispers to draw you close. What does he say in those whispers? He says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I have been with you every single moment. I love you more than you can imagine. So when you hurt, I hurt with you. When you're in the valley, I'm there with you. When you're in the wilderness, I am with you. When you're in the storm, I am with you. Why does God whisper? He whispers because he's right there. He's close. Where do you want to be when you're afraid? When we were kids and the lights went out and it got scary, where did we want to be? We wanted to be with someone who would give us security. Anytime there's a big storm in the middle of the night, where would my kids go? Right to mom and dad's bed. They wanted to be close to the ones who made them feel safe. So listen to this. Here's the truth that our theme verse drives home. Emmanuel, God with us. In the middle of the storm, you don't have to run to God's bed. He's already with you at yours. He's right there. He's close. If you're in the wilderness, if your heart is hurting right now, you feel broken hearted, where is God? Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is close to the broken hearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Why does He whisper? He whispers because He's close. Because He's near. Because He is with you. Let's go back to Psalm 23. David is talking. David the shepherd. He says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Even though I walk through the valley, and the valley's not my destination, I'm just passing through the valley. But even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For He is with me. Because God never left me. Because God is always close. Why does God whisper to His sheep? Because He's close. He knows His sheep by name and His sheep know His soft and gentle voice. In Psalm 139, David again speaks of God's presence. He says, Where can I go from Your Spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Your right hand will hold me. How close is the presence of God that he can hold your hand? Why does God whisper? Because he is close. One day you'll discover that your deepest need becomes a gift when it drives you to depend on God. God who is close by your side. So here's what I hope you'll understand. God is with us. 
We enjoy him on the mountaintops, but we get to know him intimately in the valleys. When we're wandering in the wilderness and we feel like nobody understands, we will realize that our deepest need is really a gift because it drives us to depend on God. He understands and he cares and he's always good. He isn't in the booming earthquake. He isn't in the rushing wind. He isn't in the raging fire. Where is he? He is in the whisper. So if you stop for a moment away from the busyness, away from the rush of the world, if you stop and dig a ditch, we talked about it last week, you make a well, you prepare for the presence of God, God will meet you there. Because who is he? He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Why does God whisper? He whispers because he is close.